Fanatsu is a podcast series that features discussions and interviews designed to help educate the Guam community, as well as the rest of the world, about the decolonization of the island and the possibilities should it become an independent nation. Alright guys, we're here at the first coffee shop combos for the Independence Task Force. I'm here with Miguel Bavacqua, professor at University of Guam, Becca Garrison, a USC PhD candidate, and uh, BJ Bell, who became the de facto face of the uh, coffee shop combos. So welcome everybody. Half a day. Buenas. Buenas and half a day, Todos. Yeah, this is cool. Situs uh, Masi to Java Junction for, for giving us the space and allowing us to take over about half, half of so we're, we're, we're pretty close to U.S. Navy levels of sort of land taking right now in this, in this coffee shop. The difference is we will give it back <laughs> when we don't need it anymore. So shortly, shortly before we started recording, we were talking about Brexit and um, BJ, you were mentioning how Scotland chose to uh, stay in the EU while uh, England obviously is pulling out. So um, if, you, if we can uh, start off where we left off on that, that'd be cool. I was shocked that Scotland had the opportunity to exit, but stayed in the UK after watching Braveheart so many times. <laughs> and it was, after doing some research, I found out that actually Scotland, if I'm not mistaken, they actually won their freedom, but a couple hundred years later, their England needed an heir to the throne. So they offered the King of Scotland to come to England and be king of both countries. So it was long after the, the war had been done. And from that point, from that perspective, it seemed like a, a good way for Scotland to become and stay part of the UK through uh, a generous offer instead of colonization. So those are all factors into how nations um, can work together or against each other. Um, it kind of depends on the circumstances, uh, which takes me back to the decolonization of Guam and how the whys and hows is just as important as as yes or no, more so in fact. Um, and this has a lot to do with educating ourselves and educating the public so we know what we're talking about. One of the main reasons I'm here is to understand it better so I don't seem hypocritical when I push for decolonization. I think on Guam a lot of times we, we, we don't think that if we're, if we're talking about decolonization, if we're talking about independence, we think, first of all, that only, only a few kind of radicals are thinking about that, and then no one else in the world is thinking about that. And it's not true. You just gotta, I mean, if my Facebook feed definitely makes me think like the world is in chaos and everybody, everybody and their second cousin and their second cousin's best friend are fighting for independence somewhere in the world. And so that, and it may be that I just know a lot of people that are activists and critical and want to remake the world in the name of justice, but it could also be that there are simply, 
when you look at a map of the world, colonizers, imperialists drew the lines on the map and they tended not to ask the people around the world what they wanted. They tended to just kind of do whatever was convenient for them and sometimes wars would move the lines this way or that. And so, you know, in the climate that we live in today where there's supposed to be this emphasis on human rights, on self-determination, it's not surprising then that you have all these people that are saying, you know what, you forgot about us. You know, when the world was decolonizing in the 60s, uh, we didn't get included in it, but we still want our shot. We still believe that we should have the right to self-determination, to control the basic parts of our life and our lands. And so Scotland is a very good example of that. To kind of piggyback after Dr. Bavakwa's ideas is this idea of that decolonization actually is a global framework of solidarities and like-minded interests, right? So, you know, thinking about Scotland all the way, you know, in, in the Atlantic and then coming back over here to the Pacific, um, you know, uh, we can we can also think about what's happening in Catalonia, and then there's a definite, you know, effort for decolonization away from Spain, you know. And so, what would that mean then, too, is considering spaces like Scotland and Catalonia, um, and also just you know thinking about these colonial cartographies or these imagined borders of, um, that are actually very uh, malleable and fluid. And so we can we can um, through our own uh, you know, volition, change those borders and change those ways of thinking as well. That was a great thing to hear, um, especially considering decolonization is not necessarily about Guam and U.S., it's about so many other places and factors, and it kind of trans, transcends ethnicity. There have been Caucasians that have colonized other Caucasians, um, Africans and other African uh nationalities, um, and also kind of for us to have the kind of the moral right, we should put it in a context more of it's not about what we as Chamorros can gain from this, um, us against them, it's just more decolonization as an idea, um, decolonizing the world, decolonizing the mind, and I'd like to learn more about these, yeah, these other... Um, places, um, other nations, other cultures that are in that process somehow. And that would, that's a bigger, and that would help Guam too in the, in the process to, so that we know more about decolonization as a whole. And of course, as an example of like, hey, here's some better examples of how this is more the norm other than just this kind of a weird radical idea. I think, oh, can, I, can I add to that? No, I was just going to say, I think that's what's so powerful about the general meetings that the Independence Task Force is having, you know, once a month, is that they are using different countries as examples to look at um, the ways in which people have gone through de decolonization. And not just highlighting the positives, but also thinking about the negatives, too. So so an independent Guahan could actually draw from those positives and, you know, kind of uh, pick and choose the way in which um, people in, in Guahan want to actually see uh, in independence. You know, I, I, got to, I got to go to Palau in two, 2013 for uh, research. I followed one of my friends, uh, Yasukatsu Matsushima, he's an Okinawan professor who teaches uh, in uh, mainland Japan. And it was interesting because we, we, we went there to kind of see the way that Palau as a, as a small island nation governs its affairs and what it's doing. And so we got to meet with the president, uh, Tommy Romengasau, and it was a, 
It was interesting because the, we all asked him different questions, and especially from the from the Guam perspective, and he basically said, and and this is this is something that we always have to think about because what Chamorros and what others on Guam are feeling or thinking about is not unique. Guam is not the only place that's been colonized and the only place that has to face tough questions about what happens next. The fear, the indecisiveness, sort of the dependency, these are all normal things that, colo- that people in colonies experience when they're faced with the question of what happens next. And so uh, President Remengasau, who who recently took some selfies with Leonardo DiCaprio and, <laughs> and you know, our Leonardo, Di- he's, I mean, he's going to be in The Wolf of Wall Street too, probably, <laughs> Tommy Remengasau. I'm kidding, I'm joking. Edit that out. <laughs> and so, um, but it's, it's kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio is not coming to Guam to take selfies with our governor. <laughs> like... I mean, I, who would we get? Who, who's like a who's like a real militaristic celebrity? That, I mean, Kid Rock maybe will come here and and take <laughs> selfies with our governor or something. But but the anyways, the issue though was that like as from an island nation smaller than Guam, where you would look at it and from our perspective, you would say they have less than us. They have nothing. You know, they've got even more coconuts than we do, and that's all they have: coconuts. It was like, what do, you, what do you do? What is the value of independence? And he said, you know, you, can nev- you should never trade away your sovereignty. You should never trade away your basic ability to determine what happens in your islands. Because even if you make mistakes, they're your mistakes. But if you, make, if you have success, it's your success too. Because if you live in a colony, your successes belong to your colonizer and your mistakes belong to you. And that's always the way it is. And we can see that here on Guam, the way that if something doesn't work, we blame ourselves. But if things are going great, then we praise America and what it's given us. And that's kind of what, you know, at at a very minimum, decolonization breaks that mindset so that you step into sort of the the light of sovereignty and you say, you know what, from now on, it's going to be us. We're going to do this. We can still get help from others. We can still work with others. But there's not going to be any more games where, where I give myself up to somebody else and I say that I'm only here because of them and what they did. And so it was a very telling moment uh, for me because it's something that I was, you know, that I that I believed. But it was nice to hear a, a head of state say that as well and basically say that's what independence is. Your successes are yours. Your mistakes are yours. And that weight. You know, it shows you sort of the, the gravity, the importance of, of what independence means. Going back to what we were talking about earlier about how we can relate um, Guam's quest for self-determination to other, other countries, other peoples, I feel like there's this veneer that's been lifted um, uh, with the, just this past year with Pack and everything. Uh, I, I think it's helped people see that, you know, there is a world just beyond Guam and there's other people who share experiences and in fact uh, would support our quest for self-determination um, and I guess in relation to what you were saying too is uh, I forgot who was telling me this but they were saying one of the delegates uh, was like um, why would you not want to be free you know uh, or decolonization is something that's natural and um, you know it's just a natural evolution of um, colonized societies it is it is it's that's why Education here is so important to just break the common sense 
which is so colonizing, the common sense. Like you can't, you, you can never say it enough how just sort of in the absence of kind of real knowledge about your situation, you will just accept certain ideas which don't really make sense. It's like, why would you ever want, why would you ever want to be in a situation where somebody has total control over you? Why would you ever want that? Even if, even if it's nice and friendly total control. Like, throughout human history, people have struggled with that idea, and usually they don't want it, because they realize that even if there's some short-term comforts involved, or you get some short-term help, in the long term, it's, it's not a very human position to be in. It's not a very just position. It's, it's, you don't want to be in that position. But, but as humans are such complicated beings, <laughs> this is what we can always convince ourselves about just about anything. Like that's that's the that's the craziest thing. I think I can't remember if it was Freud or if it was Lacan or if it was Zizek or if it was some crazy white person from <laughs> from Europe. But basically, the the thing that makes humans really unique is actually our ability to lie to ourselves and delude ourselves in monstrous, epic fashion. Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and just just the way in which the ways in which we can convince ourselves of something even if everything disproves it right climate change deniers <laughs> just just the way in which like you can have so much evidence around you it's in your face but you can still kind of cling to this idea that i don't have any power over my life but i have the power to refuse to believe the truth military build-up supporters and so <laughs> And so it's, but that's and so that's what makes stuff like this so difficult, is because if someone else kind of looked at our position, as you said, so like at FESPAC, so many people from around the Pacific looked at our position and said, "Wow, oh, you guys aren't free. That must suck." And then Chamorros are kind of like, "That doesn't suck that bad. I mean, the U.S. takes care of us, and everyone else is kind of like, it's not that's not what you're supposed to say. You're not supposed to say something like that. You're supposed to." kind of want to be free and control of things. And so, but we just invest so much energy in trying to convince ourselves that we can't do any better than being the tip of Uncle Sam's spear. We can't do any better than being sort of a, a bumper sticker for where America's day begins. And so that's why education is so important to get ourselves over that hurdle. And it's a common colonial hurdle people throughout, people all over the world and throughout history, when faced with sort of the possibilities for the future, for freedom, for decolonization, for liberty, a lot of times they said, no, I'm afraid, I don't want it because I get, this is what I have right now and the future doesn't promise me that I'll get that. I might get more, I might get less, I don't know, but the fear of freedom is so strong. And so that's why at this point, education is just really needed to help push people closer and closer so that, and we've, we've talked about this in, in many of our meetings, just so that the common sense fear and terror that they have, they can reach out and finally say, oh, wait a second, that is totally false. The next time, you're, the next time your cousin who's kind of a jackass says to you, no, I don't want independence because independence means we wear grass skirts. You will educate him, and one day he'll be realize, realize, man, I used to say the dumbest things in the world. How come you didn't smack me? How come you didn't, like, slap me around a little bit? Because 
You believe the stuff that I was saying? For 3,500 years, the Chamorros lived in the Marianas and governed themselves without the control of other powers. Spanish, American, and Japanese control took the human right of self-governance away from Chamorros, while hundreds of other colonies similar to Guam have become self-determined. Our island remains a possession of the United States and our people remain colonized. In fact, Guam is one of only 17 places in the world that have not been allowed to exercise the right to self-determination. A change in Guam's political status will allow the island to grow from an unincorporated territory of the United States to a thriving, self-determined community with greater possibilities for economic and political growth. So long as Guam remains colonized, it will be unable to grow beyond its current status. As an unincorporated territory, our needs are not prioritized by the United States. A self-determined Guam will be an empowered Guam. It will prioritize the needs of its people over the interests of others, will also be able to form better relationships with other nations and or a more equal relationship with the United States. An empowered people is a thriving people, and self-determination will allow future generations of Chamorros and others to prosper in this land. All right, so we just came back from our first break. We're at the first ever Independence Coffee Shop Convo session. Um, People are starting to roll in. We were joined shortly by uh, Adrian Cruz, right, is his name? He's the uh, chairperson for the Free Association Task Force. And now we have uh, Victoria Leon Guerrero and Jess Chargloff. Welcome, everybody. All right. All right. So, uh, BJ, um, earlier you were saying how you you came here wanting to know more about other, other people's processes for self-determination as a way to kind of understand... Guam's journey toward that eventual goal. So, um, do, do you want to clarify that question at all, or is there is there something in particular you wanted to know about? Or, um, yeah, I'm for independence, though. If I don't feel I have enough knowledge on the subject to give people a convincing argument, which is part of why I'm here. So, I have read a little bit about the decolonization. Uh, phenomenon in general over the world, over history, and it seems like a pretty obvious uh, moral uh, issue that decolonization is, is is natural. Though, like we've already been discussing, most folks here don't know much about it. Um, most folks in the United States don't even know what Guam is, though I think if they knew more about it, they would um, they'd be for if not decolonization, at least equal voting rights. Because I've been in the States and people are like, oh, Guam, blah, 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 what, what is that? I explain to them and they're like, oh, okay. Oh, you can't vote? That's unfair. You should, we should change that. But I think if they knew more about decolonization, they would be in favor of decolonization, just like a lot of people in the States are for freeing Tibet because they at least know where Tibet is on a map more likely than Guam. But decolonization um, on Guam, um, in the world... I myself would like more information on how long ideally that takes, because it's not an overnight thing, but that's what people fear. So they'll wake up one day and all the white people are gone and all us brownies will, will go hungry. And I'm a mix of both races, by the way, just so it's, so I'm kind of caught in the middle on that. Um, but anyway, um, I think um, there should be more emphasis on how it's normally done from success stories of other countries, how long it takes, not just that it, like it's a matter of years, not months, 
um, decades rather than minutes. Um, so, yeah, if there could be a little more talk about that, that'd be, that'd be great. Sure. I mean, I think you raised a lot of really valid uh, points and questions. So, I mean, of course, if we were to first, you kind of talked a little bit about the American, the average American not knowing where Guam is. I think also another thing is that the average American doesn't realize that the U.S. is a colonizer and has colonies in the world. And so, um, and, and that is very, very serious in terms of the American identity, right? This idea of spreading democracy to the world, but then also controlling and having quote-unquote possessions, right? Possessing other peoples, other nations, and preventing them from uh, being free, right? And being able to democratically elect all their leaders, as you pointed out. And so, um, you know, I think that that is an interesting argument to be made in the U.S., is to really educate average Americans about the U.S.'s existing colonies. Here on Guam, I think also um, because we, we don't talk enough about this in our schools and because we learn from an American framework, the same dilemma exists where our own people often struggle to grapple with this idea that they are colonized, right? And what does it look like? What does it mean to be colonized? And for Guam in particular, having been colonized for so long and being one of only 17 places that remain colonized in the world, um, this is an a really arduous process, right? It's it's multifaceted, meaning that colonization seeps into every aspect of our lives and into our identity, right? So parts of our identity um, that we think are definites, right? This idea that a lot of people on Guam think that if we were to choose independence and the U.S. were to leave, another country would automatically come in. That's, an, that's a regular fear that we hear. It's that we've owned this identity as a colony so much that we don't see ourselves ever just being left alone, right? And we haven't really, as a community, paid enough attention to how the rest of the world did decolonize, right? That over 80 places went through this process and chose independence and were successful in achieving independence. And these are places with very similar histories to us. Um, and, and, you know, that is the magic sort of um, answer, right, is, is that it doesn't happen overnight, right? So you kind of touched on that, that in most of these places, there were transition periods, right? And in some, and it really depended on the severity of the colonization, for lack of a better word. So in some cases, the, the dependency on their colonizer wasn't as great as we see here in Guam. And so, of course, the process towards independence could happen relatively quickly in other places. And in the case of Guam, you would want to have a transition period that would last ideally anywhere from, you know, we were saying it could be anywhere from 10 to 30 years, right? And, and the idea is that there would be this gradual way in which the island would assume power over the things that the U.S. currently controls, right, and, and assume autonomy. And that'll happen in phases. So um, because the United States signed the U.N. Charter, they agreed to a sacred trust, as described in the U.N. Charter, uh, to ensure that the social, political, economic, and educational advancement of the people in the territory they were colonizing would always be uh, protected, right? And so that stands even in the decolonization process. So what that means is that 
the U.S. has an obligation to its territory to ensure that before its ultimate departure that there's stability in these areas, right? It also has an obligation to respect the culture and the unique identity of the people, right? And to understand that if the people choose independence, the U.S. has to respect that. So that is written into the U.N. Charter that um, unlike, you know, free association or statehood in which Guam would basically have to ask Congress if they would want to be freely associated with us or if they would want to make us a state. Um, in the case of independence, if Guam chooses independence, the United States would have to respect that desire, at least according to the international community and international law. And so um, for us, that's a really important aspect of this, is really holding the U.S. to um, its having signed the U.N. Charter, holding it to its accountability as a nation state that belongs to the United Nations. And, you know, so that said, we wouldn't, none of us are saying, like, independence is going to happen in a day, right? It's, it likely will happen over um, potentially a couple decades, right? And, and I know that, we know that because of the history, right? Guam's dependency right now is so deep. Most of our food is coming from U.S. ports, for example, right? We have to be able to have food security and figure out other ways that we would feed ourselves. That's really important, right? Um, and then there are other things that are really exciting about that as well. This idea that a lot of our limitations in terms of how we feed ourselves have to do with this dependency, right? Only getting food from U.S. ports limits us economically. So in this transition period, we would want to transition in a way that we would gain full control over what comes in and out of our island. And that would allow us to gain full benefit from that. So right now, um, you know, I was talking with a UN expert, Dr. Carlisle Corbin, and he was saying a really important way to look at it is that people forget that Guam has actually a lot of deficits because of our colonial status. So meaning that there are a lot of taxes and fees that come through the island that we don't see or that we don't benefit from because the U.S. does. So in terms of, you know, taxes on air airplanes that come in and out of the island or visitors that come in and out of island or goods that come in through the port. So, you know, we would be able to maximize our ability as an independent nation to see all of that income directly, right? It would no longer go to the U.S., but what would need to happen in the transition period is that we would need to be trained in how to um, run those parts of our daily lives that the U.S. has control over, right? And that's happened in nations across the world that are around the globe, right? So the U.S. would provide aid and training and equipment would be turned over to the government of Guam so that we would be able to do these things on our own. The other thing is that we would be opened up to international aid. So as an independent nation, we don't benefit from like the World Economic Forum or we don't benefit from uh, funds towards agricultural development. The U.S. does and the U.S. can get that funding, but Guam can't because we're not an independent nation. So... Well, and we don't yeah. vote, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I think a lot of people think like, you know, them leaving just means 
immediate mayhem and that we're going to be poor. But in fact, it actually will open us up to all of these other economic opportunities, both from financial aid from the U.S. as part of their obligation as our former colonizer, but also from international aid, right? And, um, you know, it's really important to understand that right now the economic um, powerhouses in the world are located in the Asian Pacific region. And the only reason Guam is not benefiting from that is because of our relationship with the U.S. And that's very important for us to know and understand. And we see that with the Philippines. President Duterte is saying, there is no benefit for me to continue to be a subject of the United States or to be uh, at the whim of the United States when economically my neighbors can offer me more. And so, I mean, I think for Guam, really paying attention to what's happening there um, beyond outside of just the American media's sort of filtering of what's happening in the Philippines, but listening to what he's saying. And it really is important for us to think about in terms of our own quest for independence. What, what are we missing out on, right? We always think about what are we going to lose? Well, what, about, what are we missing out on and how can we achieve that? There's a, a big irony, I, I feel, last several years where discussion of decolonization, whether it's particularly for independence, it seems very, what's the word, uh, tra traitorous, uh, what's the word? Like you're being a traitor. Unpatriotic, unpatriotic to the United States. Uh, yet, we, despite not knowing much about, the, about colonization, it's absent from the basic education system, we were certainly uh, instructed in American history. And America is a relatively new country that was founded on, well, on an actual revolution. They were a colony just, in, just a couple hundred years ago. And we learned all about the injustices of the dual standards and limited rights of the colonial subjects and how the American Revolution, the bloody re revolution, was in the end justified. And the, those um, unpatriotic and leaders who said no to the king because they won the war, they're the heroes of the new country. So I try to remind people of that and think of it in that sense when it comes to Guam becoming its own country, not through war, but just through, through reason and through, through, through talk and because it's the natural state. Um, I think we could learn a little bit more about that uh, as far as colonization from a former colony. Yes. It's, uh, it's great that you bring that up because too often, as you said, people are afraid to think about decolonization or independence in particular because of not wanting to appear to be anti-American or not wanting to appear to be unpatriotic. But there's so many different ways to approach that, though. Because, first of all, what does it mean to be patriotic if you are from a colony? Like, you can't, you, no, matter, no matter how many sort of pairs of red, white, and blue underwear you put on, Guam is still a colony. There's, there's just no way around that. And so, if you take it to that point, why would you be patriotic if you are in a colony? Do you do it because you hope that you're going to get more out of the United States if we prove our loyalty to them? But if you're an unincorporated territory, a possession, you exist. You exist to be used. You exist to be owned. It doesn't matter how patriotic the spear is to the warrior. 
the warrior can throw the spear away and do whatever it wants. It can use the spear to pick Lemai. It can use the spear to kill its enemies. It can use the spear to pick its butt. Like, the spear exists to serve the warrior. And so we have to think, if we are in a colony, an unincorporated territory, what is the value of being patriotic? Like, and, but that's a conversation that most people cannot have. They don't want to think about because then basically the, the, the huge castle that we've created to pretend that we are a part of the United States, that we are just like any other corner of the United States, that we're simply a, a browner Bakersfield, California or something like that, that, it's, that, that it falls apart. But your reference to the American Revolution is very important because all of the things that we experience now, experience they experienced then. All the rhetoric that we use now is in many ways similar to there. When we talk about the Jones Act, the sort of the forefathers of the United States talked about, they talked about certain mercantilist policies which were constraining the U.S.'s ability to trade with its neighbors. Basically, the, the American colonies said, we want to trade with other countries and with other colonies in the region. Britain said no. And so you can see then the similarities with what Victoria was saying about the Philippines and what we have here is that there's these policies that serve the colonizer, they don't serve us. But then even in terms of um, people being undecided or being afraid, oh, historians often quote that in the American Revolution, only one-third of the people supported the revolution. And one-third of them were against it, and one-third were, were in the middle, didn't know which side to go on. And you can see similar things here, is that people are afraid, they don't know which way to go. Some people say, let's become a state. Some people say, no, let's fight for our freedom. And it's sort of the same thing. It's not like, so we're not in any sort of uniquely colonized position where or we're not in some position where we cannot be independent because we're so small, because we've been colonized for so long. Like, none of those things apply to us. And so... I think also, um, because I, I've, I've heard what you're saying a lot, um, people think that, like, it, aren't we offending the United States by wanting to decolonize? And so I always remind them that it was the United States that listed Guam as a non-self-governing territory in the UN. Um, it was shame to do that. Like, they were like, no, you have colonies too. You need to list them. And when they were told that they needed to, they listed Guam. Um, that's one thing. They acknowledged Guam, that Guam is a colony by doing that. And even more recently, I mean, just this year, the United States gave $300,000 to the government of Guam to educate our community about our political status options. So the U.S. is still, at, at least in that small way, because it is relatively small in terms of the amount and it was the first time in a very long time that they've given any aid towards this but in doing that they also uh, upkept their obligation to, uh, to contribute to the research and education about decolonization in order to move it forward and that was just this year so you know when people think that we're offending the U.S. we that's an easy response that the U.S. acknowledges that Guam is a colony and it acknowledges its obligation to the, the decolonization of the island sometimes people will say well what about my grandparents who survived the war you know, don't I owe it to them to be American, to be grateful to the United States for saving them from the Japanese, right? Sometimes people go as far as saying, well, if the U what would you have rather had, the U.S. or Japan? And we always exist, like I said earlier, in this weird dichotomy of... Being a colony of some 
Exactly. And so um, some people feel, and I've, I've heard someone actually say that she would never be able to support independence because her mother was a war survivor. And she owes it to the U.S. for her life, that if her mother had died in the war, if the U.S. hadn't saved Guam, that she would not be alive today. And therefore, she would always choose the U.S. over anything. Well, I always turn that around and say, well, coming out of the war, all those that survived the war quickly realized the injustice in their lands being taken or in the fact that they weren't able to return to their homes, right? And so then you saw, you know, like with the Guam walkout, the Guam Congress walkout, our demands were for equal rights. Our demands were for a voice and for power and for the ability to negotiate. At the time, to get that was to request U.S. citizenship because they were operating within the framework of American values, right? So they were like, at the very least, you should be giving us American values. Well, now, over 70 years later, we have to ask ourselves, did we achieve the things that our war-surviving ancestors asked for, and we haven't. We still haven't been given an equal voice. We still don't have all of the promises of America. And they themselves, the war-survivors that are still alive, many of them have said that after all of this time passing, that they can see that Guam would be better as an independent nation. They can see that the things that we deserve as a people will never come from our current political status or will never come from our relationship with the U.S. And so I always remind people of that, that even then, the war survivors wanted the same kinds of freedom that we want today, right? Actually, even Governor Calvo, in, in his discussions on this topic, cites his great-grandfather, right, and, and his desire for freedom and his desire for equality. And so some people would argue again that they would have wanted statehood. Well, yes, maybe then they would have, but now is statehood really achievable, right? So do we only look at the the vehicles that were afforded them at the time, or do we look at the things that they actually wanted, right? They wanted their land back. They wanted rights. They wanted to vote for their leaders. Do we have that today? No. Then fighting for these things is not a disrespect to them. Fighting for these things does not make us a traitor to their legacy. In fact, it keeps us very in line with um, with their legacy, right? Our grandparents did suffer in that war. They shouldn't have come out of it losing everything or losing anything more than they already lost. And we do owe it to them to fight for something better. And that's the way I see it. Or, you know, you get the other thing of my relatives are in the military. I can't fight for independence because they're there fighting for America, right? Or I have a family member that died in a war fighting for America. Well, when you talk to a lot of soldiers, they actually are fighting for Guam first, right? And a lot of soldiers themselves will say that they went to fight for these freedoms at war, but they know that their people aren't given the same freedom here, right? Uh, their parents, for example, can't choose their commander-in-chief. They give that example regularly. So, you know, again, we have to ask ourselves, well, if who were they really fighting for? Likely a lot of the motivation for why people join the military today is to support their family. If they really need better options to support their family, then why can't we explore how to provide that in an, in an independent Guam that keeps them home, protecting their island shores instead of in a war where they could die and never see their family again. So those are some of the ways I approach this um, this fear, because it's real, you know? People really do feel like, you know, even talking about or thinking about independence is unloyal or ungrateful. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome.
While, while you were talking, I was looking up um, an article from the PDN. Um, I think just yesterday they posted an article about how um, South Korea and the U.S. are sending a, a joint message to North Korea. Um, is it disconcerting at all? Um, like, even with all the, the progress that independence and the decolonization movement has made um, um, with the media, is there any concern with the media and how um, there's still this uh, rampant um, uh, militarization and um, just how there's this continued mindset um, and a, a, um, a continuation of the same old, same old uh, things we've been exposed to. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, and we, we tried to do some of this recently because there were a lot of questions about, well, how would an independent Guam respond to a threat from North Korea? And we were like, well, would we be a threat to North Korea if we were an independent Guam? We have to break down why does the threat exist to begin with? Well. North Korea and China in particular see the U.S.'s presence on Guam as an aggressive presence, right, as something directed at them. It's, it's, um, and that is why their guns are pointed at us, right, or they have bombs called the Guam Killer. It's solely because of the U.S.'s presence here. So it's absolutely disconcerting to know that, you know, um, there's this big show of uh, U.S. military might along with South Korea and continuing this idea that somehow that makes us safer, right? And, and any time that the media covers uh, the U.S. military exercises or the deployment of more bombers to Guam or, as we saw yesterday, a visiting South Korean official, it, it doesn't present another side. It's always very um, celebratory. It's always very, it, it's very bizarre, actually. It's, it's never um, questioning what it means for Guam's safety. It doesn't include quotes from people like us who have questioned what it means for Guam's safety. Um, and, and it was really interesting because when I was doing research on it, I mean, they just run these whole videos of these, you know, top military officials bragging and boasting about we have millions of ocean to pl It's like our big playground, like they're calling our island a playground. Um, they're being very blunt about Guam's role as solely a place to test their weapons and a place to um, engage in this really aggressive relationship with our neighbors. And so um, I think that's an important question to constantly ask ourselves, right? Are we really safe being um, predominantly the host of U.S. military bases in this changing world that we live in, right? Is What is this going to mean for us in terms of... Um, what kind of island we're leaving for our children, right? So in almost every single interview I've done with a war survivor, and I've done many, I've done dozens of interviews with war survivors, they almost always end what they're saying with, um, I just wish that I just wish that this will never happen to my children, right? Or they say that I don't ever want you or my children or my grandchildren to experience what I experienced, right? And so if they feel that way, then why are we positioning ourselves to be the first point of attack, right? Um, if the world were to enter a third world war, we can count on Guam being one of the first places attacked, and we can count on it being much worse than when we were attacked on the same day as Pearl Harbor, because we're dealing with different kinds of warfare, we're dealing with different kinds of weapons. Now, it would be complete annihilation for our small island. And for the U.S., it would position itself in a way that 
were far away and were small enough that it would enter them into a war, but they wouldn't feel the loss like we would, you know, and that that's really scary. Um, and yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why decolonization and in particular independence is so important, because here on Guam, our society is structured so that we don't take care of our interests. We instead prioritize the interests of somebody else who we feel gives us the means to li for life, safety, all of those sorts of things, stability. And so in terms of defense, it's just one of those basic things that there's threats everywhere, but you should have the ability to choose the threats, the risks that you want to face. But because we're a possession of the United States, tip of the spear, we have to basically live with all of these threats around us that we don't have any control over. We don't have, we don't, we don't get to basically put our own voice out there and say, you know what, we don't, in the name of our, our ancestors who survived World War II and those who died, we don't want to build up this area. We would like for this to be the Switzerland of Micronesia and Pacific, and we think peace is fantastic because that's, the, that's what we have learned from our culture and from our elders. We don't get to do anything like that. Instead, we kind of have to accept the sharpening, the sharpening of the colonizer's spear tip. And so by pushing for this, though, by pushing for independence, pushing for decolonization, we get to choose. We get to basically say, this is our interest. We will ally ourselves with, with this country because we think this is important to us, or we will ally ourselves with these countries or no countries. We will, ally, we will try to be friends with everybody because our experience should not be, our experience, it's, it's very funny because people always bring out our World War II experience and say that's the reason why we should do whatever the United States wants because they'll always protect us. But then the World War II experience doesn't actually show us that the United States will always protect us. Not at all. And in fact, the post-World War II experience shows that the United States will eagerly use us as a buffer. And all of the sort of strategic analysis says that Guam's value to the United States is that if there's ever a conflict on this side of the world, it will hit Guam and nowhere past Guam. So if the U.S. decides to go to war with China over Taiwan, everybody says that Guam will get hit. But no analyst really says that China would ever want it to become a wider war where they would actually try to strike the United States. But in the Chinese analysis, you could hit Guam and you could contain the conflict here and you could push back the U.S. without leading to the U.S. striking you necessarily. And so... so this is like a basic part of the conversation which is never there. Because as Victoria said, we're supposed to celebrate it. Whenever we get new military commanders, we're supposed to treat them like they're pop stars. And we're supposed to take selfies with them and we're supposed to hang out with them and say, oh man, Admiral, you're so cool. You're like defending freedom. Can we make some kadu together while it rains? And so, but all of that, all that's lost is what we actually want for ourselves. What would keep us safe if we kind of stopped pretending that we exist to defend the United States, but actually started to think what would defend us? What would keep us safe? I think so something uh, that 
I was triggered by with what Megette was saying is even this idea for if we look at China, right, and, and how China is seeing what's happening with the U.S., this is a huge reason. Well, the main reason I don't support the military buildup on Guam is because we have no choice, that if we continue to allow larger and larger um, a larger and larger military presence without any say in it, we will continue to lose important aspects of our environment and our culture and our identity. And so in essence, it is already flawed in that it wasn't something we chose. It wasn't something that we asked for. And we have to deal with it, right? And the ramifications of it are really extreme for our environment. Our community isn't really addressing that in any real way because it's celebrated as something that's great for Guam. But how does the rest of the world see the U.S.'s military buildup, not just in Guam, but in the Marianas. So what's happening is that the U.S. has turned the Mariana Islands into the largest testing and training range in the world. It's called the Mariana Islands Testing and Training Range. And what China sees this as is an immediate threat. And so China's response to this threat, because China has you know, billions of people and can do this, can afford to do this, is to pour lots of money into building a Chinese tourist market in the Marianas to monitor what the U.S. is doing and position itself economically in our region and surround Guam, right? And and it's happening. They're building casinos and they're building up uh, major tourist operations and they're providing aid to all of our neighboring islands. And and what does that again mean for Guam? And in uh, reports released by the Chinese government, it says very clearly that China is boosting its economic presence in Micronesia in direct response to the U.S.'s desires to build its military in the Marianas. So, you know, people like to discredit us and make fun of our, our thinking and talking about this, but... Are they really doing the research themselves to see that this is how the world sees Guam right now as a threat to them and not the other way around? And so I think it's an important aspect of this discussion. It's not a popular one. I know that a lot of people would probably instantly shut down once they hear that we talk about uh, not seeing ourselves as a continued military base because for a lot of people, that's their economic stability, right? They work for the they work for the federal government, they they work as civil service employees, or they themselves are in the military. So it's a very difficult conversation to have with our community that, you know, Guam may not want to continue to take this role in the world, right? And, and one of the economic um, incentives of independence that we cannot ignore is the idea that as an independent nation, we could maintain U.S. bases here. But the, you know, the idea for an independent Guahan is that we would be allowed to have what is known as a status of visiting forces agreement in which we would negotiate, you know, uh, payment on the land that they use for their bases and, and other kinds of foreign aid for their pooling on our infrastructure and things that we don't get now. We pay them for our water now. <laughs> but if we were independent, we could negotiate in an agreement um, that they would actually contribute to our uh, government for having used our precious limited resources. So, you know, in my heart of hearts, I don't want my children to live in a militarized Guam. Am I the, uh, the norm on this island? Absolutely not. And I'm very open and aware of the fact that for most people, they would feel safer supporting an independent Guam knowing that it had U.S. military bases. So whether or not an independent Guahan hosted U.S. military bases, 
would be up to the community. What we're saying is that if our community chooses to continue to host military bases, then as an independent nation, we would get more out of it. And that is also a benefit of this situation. But we would, of course, caution our community to think through, well, what does that mean in terms of our safety and security? And, you know, I like the idea of thinking of Guam, as Maget had pointed out, as some kind of Switzerland in the Pacific, because if we look at the role of Switzerland, you know, for a lot of people, it's like a safe space they can go, or it's a tax haven, or it's a peace, it's a place that promotes peaceful relations among nations. It doesn't align itself. Or we look at a place like Costa Rica that has chosen not to have a military and to continue to be successful, independent nations. I think that... Um, it would be good for us to explore those options and think about what it means. You know, our ancestors actually didn't believe in war. I don't live in some fantasy that they were happy, peaceful all the time and never fought. No, they had conflicts. They fought. But once one or two people died, they stopped fighting because they believed that anybody killed in battle would become a restless soul, banished from their family and, and haunting everyone else. So if we applied that belief about war to Guam's role in the world, what does that mean for our people today? Are we haunted by the restless souls of those that have been killed by bombs that were launched from here? Or even of those that were killed, there were thousands upon thousands killed on our shores at the end of the war, right? Where did all those restless souls go, go right? And it's important to think about the legacy we inherited as Chamorro people and ask ourselves, are we upholding it? And hosting US military bases, I would honestly say, no, we're not. We're talking about spirits, and I think um, it, it might be kind of helpful to sort of invoke uh, metaphysics on some point, and just the idea that so many minds now are coming together and even just uh, thinking, um, thinking about an independent uh, future for Guam is super important. Um, I mean, what are what are what are, where are these thoughts going? Um, are they? I think they'll, they'll eventually manifest themselves in a reality, and that's the reality that we, we continue to think of and that we're, we're producing on some other plane that will eventually, you know, make itself known to us. Um, yeah. So, and I guess with that, uh, you, you mentioned water earlier and how we're paying the military for our own water. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, uh, the North Dakota Access Pipeline is a huge issue right now. Um, is there anything that you'd like to say about what's going on there? And you know, I've heard um, one of the one of the uh, the misconceptions about decolonization um, from drunken uncles and what have you is that uh, you know Guam should really consider being a, a Native American tribe. And I think if we look at what's going on there now, um, obviously uh, it's a, a huge uh, we'd be at a huge disadvantage. Um, yeah, is there anything you'd like to say about that? Yeah, there's so much. I mean, obviously, the struggle there is a struggle that's very real for us here, too. And I believe that um, it's really important for all Native people and Indigenous people to continue to work in solidarity against any destruction to our natural resources. And so um, I think it's really important for people from Guam to pay attention to what's happening there and to offer our support in any way that we can. Um, and if we take a look at um, the treatment of Native peoples throughout the United States, uh, it's, it's really, really sad, actually, right? You're looking at almost an entire annihilation of of people and their identity of, of many, 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 many tribes, right? And so um, when I, recently in a conversation with um, 
Governor Felix, former Governor Felix Camacho, who is running for Congress, he is saying that that's what he would support, is Guam getting some kind of tribal status. And his justification for it was that, you know, Native tribes get higher uh, scores in terms of bidding for contracts and that we would be able to get more contracts in the impending military buildup. Well, that's a really short-sighted vision of achieving dignity for our people. And that's what it really boils down to is dignity, right? You you look at Native American people that were, their population was reduced. They were um, forced to live in reservations and, and forced to sort of um, become dependent on this American lifestyle that has led to really unhealthy lifestyles for them with very little support, right, from the federal government. Um, and then, and then even in light of the fact that they are the native peoples of the United States, when it comes to their sacred beliefs and to their ability to control their resources, they always get dominated or pushed aside, right? And very aggressively as we see today. And so this has happened so much that if Guam were to try to emulate that status, um, we have to ask ourselves, what what is our long-term vision of self, right? Is it for these small gains or is it, you know, if we really want freedom, then why do we want to continue to belong to a country that historically has degraded and killed off its native population? If we are concerned about the restoration and preservation of the Chamorro language and culture, if we are concerned about our natural resources, then becoming a tribe in a country that absolutely disrespects native tribes is not an ideal situation at all. Um, and then in terms of our resources and what's left of it, um, I don't think people really understand that the U.S. military buildup is planning to destroy over a thousand acres through the U.S. military buildup, through the building of the offices and the um, firing range, will destroy a thousand acres of native limestone forest. And the way the media is covering this is, well, at least they're letting the native healers go in and pick the plants and save what they can of the plants. Well, we have to keep in mind that each one of these forests are their own type of habitat that is unique to their geographic location in the island. So the mitigation that was listed in the environmental impact statement was that they're going to destroy over a thousand acres of limestone forests and try to preserve a thousand acres of forests elsewhere. Well, and they're identifying the south. Well, very different kinds of plants and very different kinds of animals are in the forest there, right? Or in the jungles there. So if we take a look at you know, the North and, you know, and you, anybody that really understands traditional healing, you can't just uproot a plant and grow it someplace else, right? It, it may not prosper outside of its environment, right? So um, it's very insulting to me to think that, like, this is lauded as some kind of awesome gesture on behalf of the military to save some aspect of our culture when we're losing a thousand acres of really important limestone forests. So, you know, as a native person, we have to ask ourselves, like, what are we doing? Why are we, why are we celebrating these things? We should be mourning the loss of that jungle. And it's not just the Navy that is the only sort of uh, perpetrator in this. You know, if you look at even Guam's development of Tumon, for example, and everything that was lost there in terms of that being a thriving ancient village and all of that was lost to us, right? Um, 
different, you know, the, people have always made that argument. Well, what about all the private landowners that destroyed those sites? And so we can all agree, yes, that we've all contributed to the destruction of our, of many of our native habitats, right? And, and of much of our ancient history. Um, but does that mean that we then allow them to continue to destroy another thousand acres, right? Or in the case of recently, there was um, a big issue about the Chamorro Land Trust extending a commercial lease that would also destroy um, hundreds of acres of land that would be used for a quarry um, in the Pocket area as well, right? And so that too is very troubling, right? So what is what is Guam plagued by? Its military presence, and then in that essence, it's still attached the military buildup because they would be quarrying for the cement that would build the bases. So it's all connected. And so, I mean, I think that part of this discussion is not just planning towards an independent Guam in the future, but making, uh, taking action now that allows us to have the independent Guahan we envision. So there should be a moratorium on that kind of destruction at this point because so much has been lost, right? Um, and that's something we should be pressing our local leaders on, right? And, and our local leaders can assert more power even in, even in the scenario of what is being planned as part of the buildup. But just two days ago, I was forwarded a letter from Congresswoman Berdalio basically, you know, urging the Fish and Wildlife Service to put out its report on an endangered species that is going to be threatened by the firing range because we need to move this buildup forward. And, you know, I mean, instead of really asking ourselves, do we, you know, there is our representative. And it was so clear in her letter that it was like a letter written by the Navy, signed by our congresswoman, trying to push this build up forward. So for me, uh, my work now um, at USC is a critique of white settler colonial discourse through the lens of demilitarism and decolonial social movements on island colonies of the US, right? So really beginning to think about what it means for, um, us to push back on this idea that there's uh, that there is no uh, 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 other histories that think about um, these relational experiences of militarism. So uh, I really build from the work I'm from the work of uh, Kanaka Mali scholar Ku'u Aloha Ho'umanavanui and her theorizations of kuleana consciousness. And in Native Hawaiian, kuleana means responsibility. It has many different meanings, but it's uh, in the contemporary moment uh, utilized to understand re uh, responsibility. So I look at that and I'm trying to build on that and think about the term settler responsibility and what that means for um, white settlers or white uh, social spaces, uh, socialities to begin, you know, to really think about what would it actually look like if settlers were to take responsibility for um, the violent colonial conquests that have actually led to their positions of privilege in the contemporary moment, right? And so for me, I think it's uh, very important um, as a settler to, to step back and listen and really educate myself about what that means and um, be of service to, uh, the, uh, for now, uh, the Chamorro community in way that, any way that, is, um, that they see fit, right? So it's also coming to grips and thinking about, you know, um, having these conversations with settlers also to actually think about their, their own positionalities as settlers because so oftentimes we're not taught like you guys are talking about the different processes of education, right? So much of um, um, what we're taught in history also 
is uh, is also the product of a colonial education, right? I understand here in, in Guam, in Hawaii, in Puerto Rico, in Vieques, um, particularly, thinking about um, you know how education works out here through imposition, and how uh, so much of what you're taught about history is through the lens of whiteness and U.S. history nar historical narratives, right? Whereas in California, where I grew up we were taught by omission. So the colonial education works almost in its opposites, right? We weren't taught about a damn thing about what was happening here in the islands, how there's been any resistance to it at all, right? So um, that's really where I'm at, where I'm, work right, where I'm at in my work right now, is thinking about these relational experiences of militarism, but also opposition to it, and really a reflexive gesture to understand what is my own responsibility as a, as a white person doing work within these communities and how I can really push forward a, a framework that gets other settlers to begin to think of a more holistic understanding of history and their own responsibilities to those types of frameworks as well. When we talk about uh, self-determination here on Guam and the plebiscite, we try to, we try to remind people that it's not about race. Um, this is a, a time-based um, distinction of who can vote. But um, it, it's so interesting that like, a lot of the anti-independence uh, um, speakers or writers uh, are not from here. Um, like, uh, of course, Paul Zerzen uh, most recently. But um, do you think it might be helpful in some way, uh, uh, having you as a, an outsider of sorts um, writing for uh, self-determination for the indigenous people? Well, this is why I think it's so important to do qualitative research and um, thinking in terms of understanding history through counter-narratives, right? So a lot of my research is based on oral histories. So the beginning of my project began as a comparative looking to stop the uh, the, uh, the bombing practices and military training in Koholave, Hawaii, compared to Vieques, Puerto Rico, right? And so uh, when you begin to understand um, really the ways in which certain specific histories are withheld from you, especially growing up in the continent, what's now considered the, uni the United States. It's, um, it's, it's imperative that we begin to really critique these histories because so much of the way that we learn history is uh, through the lens of whiteness, through a dominant narrative that is controlled by hegemony, right? Uh, by people in positions of power who've traditionally been um, white folks, right? So. Um, I, I am, you know, I'm still coming into my own um, comfort levels and in, in taking in this type of role, but it's uh, it's also very important for um, for settlers who are in who are living atop indigenous lands, in this case Chamorro lands, to have these types of conversations um, because there can be uh, there's complete misunderstandings in the paradigms that we're even coming to this work or understanding geography or understanding history because we've been taught these different histories and geographies through very specific lenses, right? Um, so, you know, I'm here to uh, support in any way that is uh, deemed necessary by the Independence Task Force. All right, Jesse, uh, you're not getting off scot-free just yet, man. Um, <laughs> I know uh, you, you expressed some interest last night um, in our discussion over the differences between free association and independence. And I know at the last, at the GCC forum, it did kind of seem like there was a lot of overlap. Um, could you could you elaborate on your your concerns? And um, hopefully uh, one of our, our representatives here can uh, can answer those. Oh, um, yeah, I guess the differences between independence and free association to me, or first maybe we should talk about the similarities. 
I think under uh, both of the statuses, we could um, negotiate identical international, you know, contracts between the both of them. But it's as it happens is um, what usually happens with free association is that the the bigger nation tends to overlap on the sovereignty of the smaller ones. You know, as in the case of Palau or the FSM, in which it, yeah, in those cases. So. But I think the main difference is that, um, I guess under UN law, um, the U.S. would be obligated to honor a vote of independence if Guam chooses, it, as opposed to um, if we voted for a free association, they could um, choose not to act on that. They won't have to agree to any terms with us and just keep us at the status quo in that situation. But I wanted to talk a little bit about um, what Victoria was talking about regarding uh, tribal status. And um, I think the circumstances of um, the indigenous people in America and the indigenous people in Guam are like really different. You know, whereas uh, the indigenous people in America are limited to reservations and any other borders of their nations are like kind of blurry in America on Guam. Our borders are clear, you know, like um, it's the whole island. That's our reservation and that's what we want from Retidian to Maritzo and Hagatnya to Pocket. And it just, it stumps me when people talk about tribal status, like limiting our potential to those things. Like I would think that we'd be, we would be more like um, entitled to the whole island, you know, have a sense of entitlement, a sense of, of responsibility to take care of the whole island. And I think it goes back to what you're talking earlier about earlier about, about um, patriotism and how building a nationhood on Guam, a Chamorro nationhood, is thwarted by our feelings of patriotism with the United States. We already have a intertwined nationhood with the United States, so how are we going to build a nationhood amongst Chamorros? And I think it's starting to happen now. I think it starts with the realization of history and just realizing what has happened to us in the past will you know, make us want to build a Chamorro nationhood. And um, I think it's happening now with Chamorro studies. A lot of people <laughs> go into it without any knowledge of what has happened in our histories and come out of it selfless and only caring about what happens with Chamorros, you know, Chamorro identities and Chamorro culture and Chamorro agency, really. And um, I think that's going to be a, play a big role in winning an independence vote. But um, the other part of it, I think, is also, too, people want to, to hear a plan for independence, maybe a specific plan, like how's our government going to be or what exactly is our relationship going to be with the United States. And I know that we can't get too specific until we get into the transitionary period after we win a vote of independence. But I think um, the Chamorro Studies Plan can be a vehicle to offer a head start into that transition period. I think it's happening already now, but I think... Um, more can be done, like maybe a, implementing a constitution writing class, you know, something like that, or maybe um, a, a diplomatic training class, something like that, like how, what Mr. Corbin suggested. And um, I think that we can, yeah, I think we can do a lot, of, a lot with Chamorro studies, with students who are already becoming selfless about, you know, independent Guam.
Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Uh, I taught a uh, EN 111, the research writing class. That's like a requirement for all UOG students. And um, for our research focus, I wanted them to focus on constitutions. And so uh, the semester was structured in a way that they would first learn about what a constitution is, and then they would study a constitution of another nation that they had to ran. I had like a list of other nations, and they had to randomly pick one that they honestly knew nothing about. And then at the end, they would come together and write their own constitution for Guam. And so it was pretty amazing. And the U.S. Constitution was not included because it's the only one that they all knew and that they all understood, right? So the idea was to look at the rest of the world and see what they could. And then that way, when they were designing their own, it wouldn't just be exactly like the U.S. Constitution, which is what we saw in Guam with our own Constitutional Convention. It was very similar to the U.S. Constitution. And so at the end of the semester, we went and presented it to the governor. And uh, when he was taking a look at it, he was like, this is so different from the U.S. Constitution. Why? And my students were like, well, we found that there were way better constitutions in other places in the world. And he was like, really? Because if I was asked to write a constitution, I would just write one like the U.S. And they were like, yeah, no, we, our goal was to see if that was the best thing for us. And so my students were really inspired by Palau's constitution. They were really inspired by South Africa's constitution in particular. And they also came up with their own unique uh, division of government based on ancient Chamorro society and based on consensus. And it was really beautiful. And so I think there's absolute value in uh, having a course that's focused on constitution. I mean, and actually, in I went to the University of San Francisco and in our mission statement was a, a social justice oriented education. And so every course and every subject area has to have a social justice component. And I, you know, you take constitutional law classes or you take um, there are many different courses actually in which um, we studied constitutions of other places in the world. And that was one of the most enlightening experiences for me as an undergraduate. And so I think that would be a wonderful idea at the university. University. And then you end up with all these different drafts at the end of every semester. And, you know, and, and essentially it's it's from a generation that's going to inherit whatever we choose for, for Guam. And that's the power of everybody sitting around here is that uh, we, we don't often lead this conversation or we haven't for a long time, but we really matter in it. And I think allowing people that are undergraduates in college to go through that process, they'll have more ownership over what becomes of Guam if they can envision a better governance, right? Adrian Cruz, guys. Um, half a day. Half a day. Uh, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to splurge your title. It's sure. the uh, chairperson now of the Free Association Task Force. Is that correct? That's correct. Awesome, man. Um, I'm really excited that you missed most of our discussion. That's but right. um, <laughs> if you could just say a word uh, about um, the importance of what we're doing. Uh, I, I know you, you represent a different task force, but our goals are very much aligned. Um, if you could talk about the importance of self-determination and taking the first step on this journey. Well, regardless of what task force we are, whether we're statehood or independence or even for myself, free association, the goal is actually the same. And um, it's really about um, being able as uh, disenfranchised Native people to be able to once and for all uh, exercise our human right um, to determine our own future. Um, we live in a very precarious time in our world right now, and uh, it is important that uh, we navigate our own futures as opposed to 
for lack of a better word, being the plaything of um, great colonial superpowers. I mean, uh, it's the 21st century, and uh, we should live in a more enlightened world. And a part of that is taking responsibility for ourselves instead of um, asking other people to take care and solve our problems for us. Uh, we're, we're all grown adults. Uh, Guam has been a colony for... Well, longer than almost any other place in the world since the 17th century. Um, and um, taking all those experiences uh, in stride, uh, it's time for us to um, uh, mature up and uh, exercise our own inherent right. Um, so all of our task forces really share that same sentiment. Um, and I think it's, it's good for Guam, not just for the native inhabitants, but for everybody involved. Because uh, as we know, um, it seems like uh, we see on the PDN and, and other news sources that um, there's more and more tourists coming and they're always um, ranting and raving about how great it is because uh, uh, we're filling out max uh, capacity in our hotel rooms. But the reality for everybody else living on Guam is that things either seem the same or a little bit even worse. And, and our financial situation is kind of precarious right now. Uh, you know, we have another territory uh, the territory of Puerto Rico, um, and look at what happened to them. I mean, they're they're in a federal takeover right now, and their debt isn't their debt per person isn't that much more than our debt per person currently. And so, how are we going to feel if uh, I mean we already have a, a federal takeover of our trash system, and and that's just such a basic thing. And if we look around us, did that solve our trash problem? No. I mean, there's trash everywhere. Um, so what's going to happen if the government of Guam also goes into federal receivership? I mean, are we going to be okay with that? Are we going to be okay um, with others deciding what is going to be priority or part and parcel of what belongs to us? I don't think so. And so a, lo a lot of this movement is really about uh, just settling once and for all. And um, at whatever table we sit, we would at least like... Uh, our fair place. Uh, we would like a, a seat at the table, not uh, waiting for marching orders. So um, that's that's it. Before we wrap up, um, uh, are there any plugs? Any plugs, you guys? By the time this comes out, it'll be like November sixth. Anything coming up in 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 the next week or two? Okay. November. Uh, so the Independence uh, General Assembly normally occurs on the fourth Thursday of every month, but because of the Thanksgiving holiday, it'll be on Tuesday, the fourth Tuesday, November 22nd, at the Chamorro Village from 6 to 7.30 in the main pavilion. So that's the General Assembly, November 22nd, 6 to 7.30. See you there. How can people get involved with uh, self-determination and what we're doing here? Uh, first of all, if you're not already signed up for the Chamorro Registry or the Decolonization Registry, sorry, uh, please do so at the Guam Election Commission. That's one of the first steps that you can take. Um, the second thing is definitely try to go to these events and get more information. Um, with the Independence Task Force, we have different committees where people can be involved in our work. So if you're interested in helping out, please email us at independentguahan at gmail.com. And if you're in interested in Free Association, check us out on Facebook at Free Association for Guam. Uh, also, a real important thing is that uh, the election is coming up. Um, it's important for you to go out and vote. Um, you need to, democracy is not a spectator sport. 
Um, you need to get out there. And, and what's important about this is because this next legislature will determine if we're going to get funding to do these things, if we're going to be able to continue the work of... Um, uh, of decolonization, um, you know, if we if we don't have the support of the legislature, um, that could make our that could hamper our work severely. So get out there and vote, um, and do the right thing, uh, regardless of whatever uh, whatever status you want. Uh, it's important to uh, exercise your democratic obligation. Fenatsu is created by the Media Committee of Independent Guahan. Independent Guahan's mission is to empower the Chamorro people to reclaim their sovereignty as a nation. Inspired by the strength of their ancestors and with the love for future generations, they seek to educate and unify all who call Guam home in order to build a sustainable and prosperous independent future. Feedback and questions can be sent to independentguahan at gmail.com, all one word. For more information, head to www.independentguahan.com or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Ihinengaynya independen guahan, harapan ia nafar mataknya iman tomorrow. Pada tertuli parti direcota komo unnashon gihilutano. Gini minat gud niha iman yanata, jadi guna zata nui famago umtamotna. Ina kekefan manungo, jadi kekefan netdon todu itau tosiha ni manyasaga gih ini natano. Pada tanat let fetna ija guahan ni todu ini nasenyata. Kosikisinya tafan lat la maulik motna. Fenatsu hita lat mon.